Welcome to the Big Break Software Podcast. We'll be talking with software startup founders, software coaches, and consultants, and how they found their own software success. And now, let's get started with the show. Hi, everyone. This is Jordy Wardman here, host of the Big Break Software Podcast, where I talk to top leaders in the software field like Seth Godin, Andrew Warner of Mixergy, and many more. Today, we'll talk to Roman Pilcher about how to manage your team using the best development practices so you can get started on your zero to 30 journey, achieving your software big break. Today's episode is brought to you by OneStop.io, which I co-founded after being in SaaS for nearly a decade. We have 45 developers waiting to take your idea to fruition. If you want a reliable full stack development team with top talent that costs half as much as in-house developers. And you can think of us as your outsourced CTO. We've got 20 years of development, entrepreneur and business experience to help keep your software project from ending up in the software graveyard. We specialize in software as a service and software startups. Contact us today at onestop.io so we can talk about your project. Today, I have fellow podcaster Roman Pilcher, who is an agile product management consultant and author of top-selling books on agile product management. He specializes in agile methodologies and consults for some of the world's largest and most respected enterprise companies, such as Google, uh, Adidas, Nokia, eBay, Lloyds of London, and many more. How are you today, Roman? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me, Jordi. Yes, yeah, my pleasure. Uh, why don't you tell me um, about who you are and what exactly you're doing, um, what you're doing these days? Sure. So, uh, I, I, you know, as you, as you said in your kind introduction, I tend to um, specialize in product management and particularly the intersection of agile practices and, and product management. So I've, uh, I've got a decent agile background and in fact I started out as a, as a developer and then more or less accidentally uh, came to the product management profession. I think as many people who work in that field, uh, there is no sort of clear path to becoming a, a product manager or product owner. Um, and so what I do these days is I, I teach um, and I run workshops and I consult companies and help them um, establish an effective product management function and um, apply agile practices in the realm of product management in an effective way. Okay, great. So what would you say, um, who, is, who is your customer and what would you say their main problem is? So I tend to work with larger established companies um, uh, in addition to the occasional startup. Um, usually the problem is um, a lack of a product management or product management skills or a product management organization that uh, doesn't work effectively, doesn't work effectively with development um, in particular. So, you know, I experienced that quite often issues between product people and development teams and an effective collaboration is not always easy to achieve for various reasons. And so that's, that's in a way where I come in. Okay. Let's, let's go back a little bit first and then talk about your background. So you, you mentioned you were a developer. Um, how did, what was the, the journey from going from a developer into being product manager and then getting into specializing mm -hmm. in, in product management and agile? 
For me, the journey started, I think, in 2001. Um, I was working at that time at, at Siemens um, at a central unit tasked with uh, helping the business groups um, get out new innovative products. And so I was working with uh, the healthcare group on a new healthcare product. And, um, you know, things weren't, weren't easy. They were a little bit stuck. So we thought it'd be a good idea to introduce agile practices. And remember that was 2001. Right. This is and like really literally like when it, the, the manifesto came out. Is that, is that right? Yeah, it was really early days. And yeah. I think we only had limited experience in applying yeah, Agile, yeah. certainly in an enterprise context. And, and at that time, was it mostly waterfall? Is that? Um, yeah, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Particularly Siemens being quite a large and, and traditional company, certainly at that stage, it was a, a pure waterfall-based development process, very sequential. And, um, you know, so the, the product managers would write the requirement specification, literally hand it off to a project manager who would then work with several development teams to get it built. Yeah. So we felt it'd be nicer to... Um, work with use cases and have the use cases written in such a way that they're actually uh, un understandable, they, that the developers can, can use them and, and understand them and uh, you know, can work with them, uh, prioritize them, but also have some, some closer collaboration between product management and the development teams and try and iterate. And so um, ultimately that wasn't very successful, but I learned a lot from it. And one of the things I learned from it is that um, you know, product management really started to interest me. It took a, started to take a real interest in product management. Um, so that's really how my, my journey uh, into product management started. Okay. So um, from there, you have you ever owned your own product? I mean, oh, from a development perspective? I think so. I mean, you know, owning your own product is kind of, uh, it's an interesting question. Uh, I mean, you know, in, in the agile world, there's the role of a product owner and the, the product owner is meant to own the product on behalf, is meant to own the product, but, you know, I would suggest on behalf of the business, on behalf of the company. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm certainly owning a number of products on behalf of my business. So, you know, there's the, the website with its various bits and bobs, the, the, okay. the training courses that we offer with all the materials, the books that I've written. Um, and I do work with a development team um, based here in the UK at the South Coast. So the development team does the design and development work. And I essentially act as the product manager, product owner of that team. Okay, so let's, let's go into some of the uh, important aspects of product management. Can you break down like some of the core components of, of being a really good product manager and the differentiation between product owner and product manager? Mm. I mean, could, could they not be the same person? Yeah, they could, and um, but it's a it's a great point you're touching upon. I think there's a lot of confusion about what is a product manager and what is a product owner. Now, the product owner originated as a role in Scrum, and Scrum is an agile uh, development framework. I guess it's the, the most popular agile development framework. Um, and so, um, in in Scrum, the product owner, as I said earlier, is meant to own the product on behalf of uh, the company. And so uh, the individual needs to be empowered and needs to be respected in order to um, make the necessary decisions. Um, and a little, I think, a fact that's uh, not very well known is that at one, in, in one of the early stages of the Scrum framework, uh, right at the beginning, uh, one, of the, one of the founders, Ken Schwaber, actually uh, used the term product manager and then changed it to product owner to indicate the level of empowerment that the individual should receive. Okay. So I've always looked at a product owner as an, an, a product manager in an agile space. Okay. And so some people like to differentiate between the two roles and say there's a product manager and that product manager is more strategic and outward facing and you know, looks 
um, looks, that looks at the market, uh, interacts with users and customers, does market research, and then there's a product owner who's more internally facing, more technically, technically minded, takes care of the product backlog, and uh, works with the development team. But you know that's an, uh, a separation that particularly uh, a scaling framework like Safe, like the scaled Agile frameworks introduced uh, in recent years, but it's it's not really um, how the the role was originally designed, and in my mind, it's a, it's a misunderstanding, a misinterpretation of the role. So I very much look at the Scrum product owner as an, an agile product manager, somebody who who manages and owns a product, and uh, works with one or more development teams. So works with a bunch of stakeholders. So for a commercial product, that'd be somebody from marketing, sales, support, in order to build a brand new product and get it out, and then progress it and enhance it and make it and keep it successful. And I guess, you know, that sort of uh, maybe partially answers your, your first question, you know, what, what's, what's a what's product manager? Yeah. 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 Um, and what's, what's a product manager? And a product manager essentially is somebody who takes responsibility just like a product owner for a product and um, ensures that that product becomes or stays successful depending on where the product is in its, in its life cycle. Okay. Uh, for, 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 our, from, for our purposes, we're probably going to be dealing with uh, smaller agile teams. So I, I see the situation where you have a founder who's going to be the product mm -hmm. owner and he has he's a vested interest in obviously the outcome of the project being successful. And then he would have, say, like a technical co-founder who would probably fall into um, what would be the lead developer. Uh, you know, let's say you have a founder, he's going to be the product owner, then the lead developer, would he be the product manager or is he going to be the scrum master? What, what, I and mean, let's break down the important roles here so uh, we can lay out great framework for our listeners. Yeah, good, good question. So uh, in scrum, there are three roles, product owner, scrum master and development team. And so somebody who's uh, technically minded and has got good uh, technical skills uh, might be well suited to be a member of the development team okay. at least initially in a startup context um, so if you have two founders um, you know as in your example one founder becomes the product owner the other founder might then go and work on the development team and uh, mentor and coach some of the other development team members a scrum master would be uh, somebody who takes care of um, process and people issues, um, okay. you know, um, helps establish an effective development process, an effective way of working. Um, somebody who helps with collaboration, somebody who helps the team become self-organizing, so identifying all the necessary work and understanding how much work can be done in a given time frame uh, in a sprint. Um, and learning to to track that work throughout the sprint and uh, meet agreed uh, goals, um, the, the the commitment, the sprint commitment, um, and somebody who who f facilitates organizational change. Um, the latter, I think, is particularly valuable in uh, in an enterprise where when you introduce agile and scrum, often you have to have to sort of uh, make some some organizational changes or, you know. Uh, trigger a form of uh, organizational development and just be it reviewing um, the um, job descriptions and uh, learning and development plans or employee selection criteria but i think in a in a for, for startups uh, there's a great opportunity to set yourself up for success right from the beginning and think about product ownership and think about the relationship between uh, essentially product product managers and the product management function and development okay um, you know, you know, it's quite often in my experience that a, a startup starts with one product, and that's cool. But sooner or later, 
that product will either grow. And so it may need then a dedicated product professional, a dedicated product manager or product owner to look after it and manage it. Um, or you may add more products. And again, then there's a case between, uh, there's a case for splitting uh, essentially line management, executive management, the work of the founders from the work of the development team and the product managers and differentiate between something like a business strategy that is, is, a, is a plan, a rough game plan for the growth of the business and then mm. a, a product strategy that, that says this is how the product, that this is how the products are going to grow and um, become successful. Okay. I mean, in a situation where somebody hires you, do you ever find yourself mm -hmm. in that situation? Or can you at least sort of imagine yourself in that position? Uh, take me, for example, I'm a founder. Uh, I've just um, put together $50,000 or pounds in, in um, friends and family. And I have this idea and I've, I've got a team. Um, you know, what are you, what, what do you, what are the things that you're going to tell me says, okay, here's what we need to do. Um, mm. and walk me through to make sure, um, that we ensure the greatest chances of success going from, you know, so that I don't run out of money and, and things like that. Like what kind of buffers yeah. do I need? Like what, what, what like tools do I need? Let's, mm. let's do a whole project together. Mm. So I think my advice to somebody who's, uh, just started uh, his own business. It's just about you know uh, to embark on that journey is to uh, invest in you know what some people call product discovery. Um, mm -hmm. So you know I'd say start by um, coming up with a vision for your product and something okay. like a product strategy. What's the value proposition? The value to create for users and customers. Uh, who are those individuals? Um, why would the product stand out? Why would it be different from other existing products? And mm -hmm. what's the, the business model? How is it going to be monetized? Okay. And then write it down in an appropriate format. So the various templates and tools available. Uh, one of the, the tools that I've, I've created uh, is called the Product Vision Board. But you know, there are other great tools out there. Um, I like to work with a tool that helps me visualize those assumptions so I can then assess them and see, okay, where the, 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 the big uh, assumptions and um, where the big risks Okay. Um, and so what should I focus on and then do a little bit of validation, a little bit of testing, a little bit of research. So that could be around, have we selected the right uh, market or market segment? It could be around the value proposition. Is that strong enough? Is it compelling enough? Is it specific enough? It could be around the standout features or it could be around the technologies. Um, and I think it's particularly valuable when you have a, a specific product idea and when you have a strong technical background. I think the danger is then to, to believe that the, the idea is cool and the technologies are cool. And if you just work hard enough, you're going to make it a success. Yeah. Yeah, but if there's sense. no market, if there's no demand, and if the market isn't big enough, and if the problem isn't uh, significant enough for people to get rid of uh, or to be addressed, or if the benefit that the product should offer, again, isn't um, significant enough or sticky enough, it's going to be very difficult to monetize the product and experience commercial and what success. What would make you feel comfortable in moving past that sort of validation stage? I think you have to be able to show that you've addressed all the, the key assumptions or the leap of faith assumptions in what I would call the product strategy. You know, those sort of key factors around, uh, again, value proposition, markets, standout mm -hmm. features and business model um, and business goals. Um, or that there are no significant big risks are left 
and you know that the various validation techniques that you can use from direct observation observing target customers and users to interviewing people to working with prototypes uh, to doing some uh, research into uh, potential partners that you may have to use doing some mm -hmm. uh, spikes some technical prototypes to investigate technical risks um, and you may have to spend a few days, a few weeks, in some cases, a few months carrying out those activities until mm -hmm. you've sufficiently de-risked your strategy and you're pretty confident that you kind of nailed the key questions mm -hmm. and it's now you're now ready to move your project ahead into, into forward into development. Mm -hmm. um, and then in development, the focus really shifts on um, building a product with the right user experience if that's applicable or the right features and the right technology so it's much more about the the how and the the the, the what you know what should be done and how should it be done whereas um in sort of the first stage when you w w want to look at it that way in in product discovery it's much more about um you know why should we do it and who's it for and okay. is it worthwhile doing it in the first place so you know, people in, 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 in Lean Startup uh, sometimes talk about uh, problem validation for the first step. So it's all about validating there is a, a problem that's, that's worthwhile solving. And then it's yeah. about solution validation in the second step, validating that you can actually solve that problem. And, you know, you can now offer a product that does a great job at solving that specific problem. Oh, um, what, what would be some of the best examples that you've come across where you've heard of people validating uh, I'll just take one example, like uh, in, in my past, I've been able to collect money up front from people for the product that, and it didn't even exist. Because mm. my thinking was like, you know, it's one thing you telling me that, that you're going to pay me, but it's another me actually getting you money for something that doesn't exist yet. Um, have you had experience, uh, you know, with stories like that, or, or maybe people like sort of um, putting their, you know, collecting, um, you know, uh, emails before, uh, you know, with a, some sort of uh, time commitment or something like that, or using a reference of their own um, reputation, you know, to say that they would mm -hmm. recommend it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think those are those are great ideas. Um, I mean, the, the key point is, I guess, to say, how can we test that uh, people would really want this product, that this product would really be beneficial and people would be willing to make an effort or pay for it. And so we can monetize it in one way or, or the other. Um, so there's a, a story, I think quite a nice story from uh, the very early days of Dropbox. And I think that the Dropbox founder um, put out a little video explaining uh, his idea and then you know just sort of watched out for the kind of feedback he received and it was overwhelmingly positive and that kind of convinced him to go now ahead and, and build the product um, i've done things you know i've had a, a little while back i had the idea of building um, a, a little uh, suite of, of tools uh, like a, um, you know, i've mentioned i've, I've got a few, few tools a few templates um, that are for they're all essentially paper-based um, you know and, and so I thought, wouldn't it be neat to to offer them as a as a as electronic tools? And mm -hmm. so the research that I did was 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 interviewing people, um, and talking to 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 bigger companies in that case, and seeing what are what would what would it take to sell to them? And so what I found is, uh, it, there seemed to be demand and interest from the the product people, but. Um, 
Uh, I'm used to selling uh, training services and consulting services to enterprises, but not tools, software tools. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I didn't have really any experience in selling software tools to procurement departments. And that essentially killed it for me because I felt I lacked the skills and I didn't want to hire people who would do that for me. I just felt that was too much of a commitment and too much of an overhead. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that just rendered the, the idea unattractive for me. Um, so, so, so it made it a cheap project for you then, essentially, because you didn't. It was a fast it. failure, yeah. yeah. And I think that's which the, that's is what you key. want, right? That's exactly, yeah. and I think yeah. it's it's really learning to appreciate that you know an early failure is is a good thing, yeah. and not clinging to your idea too much. I think that's the biggest mistake that people make, and I've made that mistake myself. You know that the idea seems so great, and because it seems so great, I want it so much, and the more I want it, the more time and energy I spend on it, and the, the longer I work on it you know, the more I believe in it <laughs> and the yeah. less open I am to feedback That's that right. tells me maybe it isn't quite, quite such a good idea. Yeah. So the, ear, the earlier we can, we can get feedback that tells us something's not quite right. Yeah. Um, it is then to change course, to pivot or just to, to let it go and look for yeah. a new idea. That's, so that, that's the, good. The, the problem usually isn't for people I find uh, finding new ideas. The problem is letting go of those ideas that are unlikely to be successful. As I said, you know, we, we, we cling to our ideas quite often. All right. So, so we've gotten past the validation stage in using this example, let's say someone's got uh, a big, large audience and their communities begging them for this. What's the next step? The next step would be to start developing the actual product and, uh, you know, make sure that it has the right features. If it's an end user facing product that it has offers a, a great user experience and that it's built in the right way with the right technologies um, and that the, the architecture is helpful for uh, creating the, the features and offering them and, and providing the desired user experience. And a, a good I- idea generally for a brand new product is what, what's, what's referred to as an MVP, a minimum viable product, a yeah. good enough product. Um, and to, to, to when it comes to selecting the right users and customers or your, your target market, understand that um, you should focus on the early market. So, you know, those guys are referred to as innovators and early adopters. So for a tech product, those are typically individuals who don't mind putting up with some teething issues. Don't mind if not everything works quite as expected, or if the product is not quite as feature rich, right. um, or if, you know, there's, the support isn't that great, or if it's a little bit tricky installing the product. Um, so, and then leverage the feedback from the early market in order to get the product right and achieve mm-hmm. product market fits and then enter the mainstream market where, you know, for commercial product, the money is. Right. So before, um, before we even get to the MVP, do you ever um, encourage people just to take the mock-ups and start showing people mock-ups? Mm. Uh, and Definitely. Is there any useful um, experience that you've had in, in like even thinning out the MVP? Because an MVP can be even, you know, like that's pretty vague. Eh? So mm. um, how can we slim down the MVP to slim down our risk as much as possible? Yeah. So I think the size of the MVP to a certain extent depends on the market that you uh, want to serve and the, the, the level of competition or the type of competition you face. So I, you know, if you take, for instance, uh, just two examples, well-known examples, um, the original iPhone and the Apple Watch. Uh, the yeah. original iPhone was a disruptive product. And so by definition, it was not only a new product, but it also created a new market. So that was made, made it easy for Apple to offer very lean um, 
product that didn't have uh, didn't features. Didn't have a lot of features, yeah. Exactly, like yeah. competitor, sort of competitor products had. I mean, it didn't have a direct competitor when it launched, but enterprise smartphones had at the time. Things like, for instance, uh, video or things like um, copy and paste. <laughs> didn't yeah. Just, just two features that were missing from the original iPhone. But then with the Apple Watch, Apple entered an existing market, um, you know, wearables and smartwatches and faced existing competition and so the the features that they had to offer with the first uh with the first release with the first version um the feature that was much richer in comparison so i think it's important uh, again to understand the market that you enter and that 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 should happen you know at the very early stages when you do some validation you do some research you do some product discovery um now when you start building the product i think it's extremely useful to consider um, employing a process like Scrum, an iterative process that encourages the development team to build a product increment every couple of weeks or so, a product increment that can be um, demoed and a product increment that can be inspected and reviewed. Um, okay. So it can be reviewed by the people within the company, but more importantly, that you can, can start showing to users and demo to users. And hopefully after a few iterations, after a few sprints, you can start releasing it. And a minimum sprint, do you think you consider a minimum sprint is two weeks or, or do you have a, what's your, your understanding of sprint? Mm. So a sprint is a iteration that lasts somewhere typically between one and four weeks. So four weeks is the, 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 the upper boundary in scrum, no okay. more than four weeks. And, you know, sprints takes as an input, um, high priority product backlog items. So those are essentially requirements that are detailed enough so that the team can turn them into working software within say two weeks. Two weeks tends to be the most popular length of sprints. Mm -hmm. And at the end of that sprint, there is then working software that's been uh, sufficiently tested and adequately documented. You know, whatever documented may mean. That may mean uh, user documentation, it may mean uh, technical documentation, uh, in some cases, documentation for support or some training materials. And the idea with a product increment is that it's, you know, generally speaking, a, a mini product, a very early version of that product that could be shipped, that ideally is shippable. Okay. So you can you release it to at least selected uh, target uh, users or customers and see how they employ it and see how difficult or easy it is for them to work with it. Okay. Um, how about working with a development team? To, uh, I I'm, uh, work with remote developers myself. Um, and when I approach clients that have their in-house developers, there's a lot of sort of resistance to working with remote developers. Do you mm. have experience on, on, on how about like even working in-house with remote um, and, and how to use the, ad, the best practices of Agile to have these two sort of entities work together? Do you, mm. you have experience with that and some best practices for that? Yeah, so my development team is not co-located with me. Um, you know, we're, okay. we're distributed. Um, I think... For, for me, it's, it's helpful to remind myself from time to time that, that software development, um, generally product development, ultimately is all about people. Uh, I think Gerald Weinberg once said, no matter what it looks at first, it's always a people problem. And I think that's right at the end of the day. We, okay. we sometimes tend to focus so much on technologies and tools, but you know, it's, it's, it's us, it's human beings, it's people who, with those so tools and technologies, create yeah. value. Yeah, so it's almost more like leadership management, you know, how you handle the people while That's they're right. working remote. That's right. Finding yeah. the right people that can work remote. Um, are there best practices? But I think what, what's helpful is um, 
to to you know whenever whenever you need any form of collaboration i think you you need to create a level of trust of mutual trust and in order to uh, be able to trust each other i think it's it's helpful to spend some time together and get to know each other so you can do this to a certain extent just online you know so you know hanging out online maybe having a virtual lunch together is, sounds maybe silly but try it uh, okay. i think it can be can be a powerful technique okay. or having a That's virtual coffee together yeah. uh, if you can it's even more powerful to work together for a week or two and you know initially partially co-locate so you really get to know each other you build a level of trust and okay. that makes it then much easier to to communicate effectively and work okay. together remotely so that be that be my suggestion you know try and work together at least for a few days a few weeks if it's yeah. possible, if not, if at possible. least have video conferences in the beginning and sort of yeah, and you know, it, get that body yeah. language feeling. Yeah. That, oh yeah, definitely. And again, yeah. you know, consider, consider some, 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 some time to hang out and, and just chat, you know, and, and, and again, get to know each other. It's we're all affected by our lives. I mean, particularly what's going on at the moment, but generally speaking, I think it's, yeah. You know, it's interesting just to learn a little bit about people, of course, in a, in a, in a respectful way. But if you don't know where people where people coming from and people's background, often, you know, what they say and do is hard to understand. Just to give you a specific example, I was in a meeting a little while ago where one of the attendees who I know is a very reasonable person was essentially hawking the meeting. And it was very difficult. You know, everybody felt really uncomfortable. And, you know, I was sort of thinking, should I say something? Should I interfere? Shouldn't I say something? And I sort of set it out, but you know, I was sort of really impatient and, uh, you know, kind of really fed up. And after the meeting, one of the other participants told me uh, between the two of us that, you know, she was the, the, the person who was being difficult. She was, uh, you know, still going through the, the divorce. And that, you know, things were extremely difficult for her at present. So I think what happened is that, you know, to a certain extent, her private life played out in the way she was acting in that meeting. And so right. if, I'd, if I had known this, it would have been much easier for me to accept her behavior or say something that might have, might have helped. Uh, might yeah. have been, but not knowing it, you know, for me, I was just getting really fed up. And, yeah. you know, what she's doing? What she's doing? <laughs> yeah. What's she behaving that way? <laughs> yeah, and, so, yeah. and so, again, you know, it goes to show that, of course, you know, the technical skills are important. Of course, you know, we've got to find people who know stuff and who can use the right tools. But I think it's also important to, to take an interest in each other and get to know each other a little bit and, and essentially care about people. Yeah. Um, and, and again, I think that builds trust and it and enables collaboration. So, you know, just by, by putting people into a video call, that doesn't mean you get collaboration. I think you've got to do a little bit more. More than that. Okay, that's good. How, how about um, some of your favorite go-to tools since you're running remote teams? What, what do you use for your agile um, uh, practices and managing everything? Mm. So we use, um, we use Skype quite a bit and we use Trello. Uh, so Trello, those are the two okay. tools, yeah. And I mean, okay. I, I, you know, I've started to do more online, uh, running more online workshops and teaching. And again, I, I like using Trello as an online collaboration tool and you know i tend to for my when i when i teach or run workshops i tend to use zoom uh, i just find it a little bit more powerful than skype yeah but uh, generally if you know we work just within my business as a team we, we tend to use uh, skype for for video calls and so and so for like managing all your your um like tickets and things like that you just do it all in trello we do it all in trello but you know, I've always liked to work in a, in a way that, that you know, I think is, is goal oriented, where we agree on goals 
and then you know check in after a week or check in after two weeks and i leave it up to people then to identify the right tasks and manage the tasks because otherwise there's so much overhead on me and i feel like i'm sort of impinging on people's work you know i'm not i'm not an expert designer i'm not an expert developer i mean that's what that's why what i hire people for so i right. kind of trust them to do a good job and we yeah. say okay you know this is what needs to be done we make sure we have a shared understanding about this and um you know that what's important to me is that the development team buys into this and says yeah that makes sense yeah we understand and that makes sense okay let's do this and then i leave it up to the development team to figure out the details which is by the way also something that an agile framework like scrum encourages you agree on a goal like a sprint goal and then you leave it up to the development team to figure out how this is best done okay so as a product owner you're not actually creating the 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 um, user stories or how does that come about well, I, I create the, the cards or we, you know, we often co-create, we often create the cards in Trello together. Okay. But then I leave it up to the development team to, to and the development team members to figure out what they have to do in detail. And they just update me, um, okay. you know, particularly let me know if they've got any issues, if, if, if they've got any questions. And okay. then, you know, we, we agree on a time frame, and then, you know, we see what, what's happened and if what we have is good enough to go live. And and how often are you sort of meeting with these guys? Do you, is this sort of you guys are chatting through Skype through the day, or do you have a daily stand up first thing in the morning, or what's so, what's so your we, favorite? Uh, go ahead. We usually we usually meet once a week, and okay. you know, reason being is that you know the team is part of an agency; they have got other clients. Unless we, there's a specific larger piece of work that we're working on together, then we, we usually uh, communicate on a daily basis. But in addition to video calls, you know, we're, we're sort of in regular contact via, via email and via Trello messages. And again, for me, that works quite nicely because I, you know, I've got other work to do in addition to working with the development team. Um, and hence, agreeing on goals is, is, a, is a great way for me to make sure we're moving in the same, dire in the, in the same direction and the product is being progressed um, in, a, in a meaningful way but you know that's not too much workload on me in terms of identifying and managing tasks and you know I essentially leave a lot of the project management up to the development team okay and, and an example of a goal would be sort of um, it, this piece needs to be working like for example let's say we're building a, um, you know a CRM and, and the first thing is that we need to have a Kanban board dash that has drag and drop that's a goal or what would you say is like what's the goal in in your um, in in your um, vision here? Yeah, so I think ideally a goal should be outcome oriented in the sense that it describes a desired benefit. So if um, I kind of you know maybe maybe if I if I if I give you an example, I, I like to work with if if I was developing a healthy eating app that helps people become more aware of I don't know what they eat and how much they eat. Mm -hmm. then a goal for the very first sprint could be to validate that people are willing to share personal information because before they've started to use the product in earnest. So, you know, imagine somebody downloads the app and then the, you know, one of the first things the app could do is ask you, you know, what's your age, what's your weight, are you, do you've got any specific dietary requirements or preferences and, you know, a number of other um, pieces of information. Now that's all fairly personal stuff. Would that be a, a barrier for adoption and usage or would it be okay? Now, I, I couldn't tell you. So for me, I'd say, okay, that's a significant risk here to, okay. in terms of getting the solution right. Um, let's test that out. And that could be a great goal for the first sprint. Or, you know, maybe, maybe the issue is not so much around usability um, and user interaction. Maybe it's more around technologies. Maybe it's about in integrating with smartwatches and smart scales. And then the goal could be, oh, let's figure this out. Let's figure out how we can seamlessly integrate with leading smart scales. 
And as you then progress and as you build up more functionality, then it could be around let's release uh, a very first app that you know at least selected users can can use on their phones. Um, and that allows people to have a dashboard and, and track their eating behavior over a week or so. And so we can then select some, some, some real data, get some real data and see how people use that product in the wild. So it depends a little bit where you are in the development process. Initially, it's typically around a good goal is typically around uh, addressing a risk and uh, acquiring relevant knowledge. And then mm-hmm. later on, it's more around being able to release certain features or then getting ready to release your MVP. I mean, you know, talking about okay. a brand new product here. Okay. Uh, all right. So, so we're doing well in our, in our imaginary project here. Um, we're getting to the, we're getting sort of what we feel like is the end. How do we watch the progress of the, of the project so that we don't run over budget and we don't, um, you know, sort of go astray. What are some guidelines there to keep mm. us on time and in budget? So the, uh, I guess it depends on the specific development framework and process you use in, in Scrum. Uh, there's a, a little we tool. We want to use that. I think that's what we want to. That's where we're you going. Want to use right? Scrum. We're going cool. to force them to use Scrum. That's all right. So in Scrum, there's a, a neat little tool called the release burndown chart. So the, the way this works is that at the end of each sprint, uh, okay. the product owner decides what is done. You know, which of the product backlog items that the development team has pulled into the sprint. Uh, which of those items are done, you know, so it's, uh, you know, working software that's been documented and tested. And if there are any user stories, the acceptance criteria of the individual user stories have to be fulfilled as well. Okay. And then the, um, uh, the uh, effort associated with uh, all the items that are deemed done is summed up. Uh, and that gives you your velocity. And uh, okay. that, that amount is reduced from the initial um, amount of effort that's in the product backlog. And so you essentially track how the amount of effort in your product backlog goes down from sprint to sprint. And once okay. you've run three sprints or so, you should see a trend and you should be able to make a forecast. Okay. Um, and that should indicate if you're able to deliver everything that's currently in the product backlog on time and on budget, or if you have to make possibly some bigger changes and maybe, uh, maybe you're only able to deliver features partially. Maybe even you have to remove a feature okay. or maybe you're in a position that you can acquire more budget and push out the, the release date, depending on what makes more sense. Okay. So, and you can manage that, you can manage, manage um, the burn down rate and velocity in Trello? Or do you sort of more manage that in a spreadsheet or how's that? How do you do that? Let's well, walk I through think, that because I, because I don't actually use that. I, it's more of a rough, um, it's more, it's a rougher way that we kind of mm-hmm. do it. But I've, you know, I've heard some developer teams using that, that, that those uh, terms and mm-hmm. I, I'd like to get mm-hmm. more familiar with that process. Myself. So, you know, what you need is a, a, a product backlog and what you need is that all the items in the product backlog that, uh, participate or should participate or should go into the next major release in our case as we're talking about a brand new product into the MVP that all those items have been estimated and those can be just very be very rough estimates um, you know t-shirt sizes or you know I, I generally find it helpful to work with story points particularly if you use user stories anyway so story points is just raw effort yeah. and you estimate them or the development team estimates them the product backlog items in in relation to each other so that's what you need to get started. And then um, at the end of the first sprint, you determine how much effort is left. And so that gives you two, and you basically draw a, a, a little diagram and you have a, a horizontal and a vertical axis. On the horizontal axis, 
the time or the sprints and mm -hmm. on the vertical axis that's the amount of effort in the backlog and so you start with the amount with the original amount of effort and then at the end of the first sprint you get uh, the the uh, the new effort and, and hopefully there was a drop <laughs> yeah and so you know that's a little line and that line is called the burn down line okay once you've, once you've done this uh, a few sprints then as a, as i indicated earlier you see a trend emerge now which tool you use depends on you i mean you know some people like to use a tool a simple spreadsheet some people you know if you use jira for instance you know it yeah. will come with uh, or you know a similar agile uh, management or collaboration tool it'll come with um, uh, an appropriate uh, electronic version of the burndown. There okay. might be even a plugin for Trello. I'm not sure. Personally, yeah. Um, you know, I. I it sounds quite... like you do it on spreadsheets, though. I we use I... Jira, so I. And I should clarify, like I'm not really as involved, so this would be something that mm. you know my dev team would definitely be managing. But but for me, is the sort of the, you know, maybe more like a um, sales contact or something like that. Um, yeah, I think. I think it depends. Um, you know, typically in a, in a Scrum environment, the product owner will be responsible for um, creating and updating the release burndown chart. Reason being that, you know, you want to make you want to make sure that two things happen. The first thing is that you create a, a product that really does create value for a big enough group of people, yeah. uh, and so it's attractive, right? Uh, or beneficial enough. But the second thing you want to make sure is that it's 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 developed in a in a reasonable time frame and you know within a reasonable budget. So if it was an amazing product but it was way over budget and way too late, it may not be may not become a commercial success. Yeah. And so you know taking taking care of the latter, you know essentially managing the development project is an important job and in scrum that be the job of the the product owner. Okay. Um, I mean, the development team contributes, and that's why why I'm personally not such a big fan of using some 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 dedicated tools to create a release burndown chart. Or, um, but but you know, I like to use, as you indicated, a, a simple spreadsheet, or even do it on, on a piece of paper, because for me, it's yeah. a conversation between the product owner and the development team, and you need yeah. to assess how um, how representatives how representative are the the sprints that you've experienced for the for the for the future of the development effort do you see what i mean so yeah. if you have a flat burn down in the second sprint but you know first and third sprint look good do you think something like what happened in the second sprint is likely to repeat if you think so if you think yes then you know it'll be an average projection you make okay. if you think no you'll probably go more for a projection based on the on the first and, and third sprint and and again you know i think you have to sort of assess this as objectively as you can and have a conversation about it. Okay. And, and if a product owner, someone that's listening now, they're th thinking about um, following our imaginary uh, project line, where could they find out how to do that? You have some good resources um, that you like to use um, to, to calculate these and um, determine so, mm -hmm. you know, how to stay, stay uh, on time and on budget. So uh, a nice book uh, is now a, a few years old, but you know a book I still recommend, certainly when you work with uh, Scrum, is um, Mike Cohen's book Agile Agile Estimating and Planning. So okay. he offers you know a rich set of techniques. Uh, I, I I wrote a book uh, a while back, I think it came out in in uh, 2010 called Agile Product Management with Scrum that also summarizes uh, the techniques that I've talked about and sort of gives gives an overview certainly uh, from a product owner perspective or for product owners for product people okay. those are those are two resources I, I I could recommend 
Okay, excellent. Um, uh, we, Roman, we're getting to the top of our hour, so I just want to make sure that uh, I get you on time for your the rest of your day, but I wanted to thank you very much for your time. Do you have some other um, resources or action items you um, might have for our listeners to, to get them started on, on down the right path of, of Scrum and uh, staying on time and on budget? Yeah, check out my, uh, my blog. Um, so uh, I, I write on a monthly basis about topics that are uh, interesting, particularly for, for product people. So, you know, I've talked about, uh, written about uh, product roadmaps. I've written about release burndown chart and release plans. Um, and you've I've got books. About, you've got your own books, right? You've got a few, quite a yeah, few books, right? That's right. Yeah, I've written a few books. Um, my latest book talks about uh, leadership practices in product management. Uh, the previous book talks about some of the, the, the early stage uh, things that could happen, you know, around validation, yeah. MVPs, but then also developing in the strategy of your product across the life cycle, moving it from one life cycle stage into the next one. So if a listener's interested in that, um, yeah, check, check it out. Have a look at my website, romanpischler.com, and um, hopefully you'll find something useful. Okay, we will definitely make sure to have that in the show notes. So thank you so much for your time today, Roman. Thank you, Jody. It was uh, nice to be on the show and uh, nice talking to you. A real pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Big Break Software Podcast with your host, Jordy Wardman. Be sure to click subscribe and check us out on the web. Keep listening and your software big break could be right around the corner.